0: The Shabbos afternoon to Ashley Sheath. You're coming to my house, which will be nice. And then again, hopefully next Tuesday night. So let me get your names. Tell me what your names are and where you're from. Something that will, and if there's anything very odd or peculiar about you so that I'll remember who you are. I'm kidding. Hi. I'm (laughs) I'm Shelly. I live in Brooklyn now, but I'm from outside of Philly. Okay. Not I'll Remember okay. every name face, <laughs> I'm Danny. Oh, I, mean, I know you, Danny. Yeah, I know you. Okay. Nice <laughs> to <And> see you. <laughs> nice to see you again. I'm Alyssa. I'm from Long Island. We're in Long Island. <laughs> I'm in Lawrence, Buckingham. Oh, nice. That's see. where you're coming you from, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm Lauren. I'm from Hewlett. So oh, we're wow. neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Julie. I'm from New Jersey. We're in Jersey. Franklin Lakes. I grew up in Jersey, in Elizabeth, saying? like, okay. the, worst, the worst part of Jersey. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, so, I'm Mila, um, and, uh... Mila? Yeah. I grew up in Israel, I was born in this other and I moved to um, New York City about 13 years ago. Nice. Hi, I'm Allie. I am from Long Island, Big Hills. Did you by any chance know Joshua Geller? That name sounds really familiar. He was a Gabbai at, I'm forgetting what shul. It's mm-hmm. And I am a photographer. I'm Natalie. I'm from Queens and um, I'm a senior at Syracuse University. I'm Adina. I'm also from Queens. Um, and what's the other it. Oh, I like pink. <laughs> <laughs> Allie, or I yell it. Uh, I'm from Brooklyn. Uh, and fun fact that I have a midterm tomorrow. Though. Oh boy! <laughs> well, I feel like I met some of you guys already. Right? Hey, were you were in the house like, the, you my house for that. You were in my house, right? And I'm a big fan. I listen to your podcast. Oh! <laughs> Who else was in my house for that last weekend? Besides Danny, and I was in my house. Ally, right? No one else. Okay. I'm Leia. I'm from Clifton, New Jersey. Um, we're seeing funny stuff. Working film. That's fun. Yeah. I'm Vanessa, I'm originally from Portland, Oregon, now living here, and I'm in optometry school. I'm Marcy Gutman, I'm from Westchester, New York, now living on the Upper East Side. And I have three sisters, and I'm the only one that has dark hair and brown eyes. <laughs> <laughs> brown blonde. I like that. Well, I'm really blonde with blue eyes, but it's like a brown wig and brown lenses. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rebecca. I'm from the Bronx. and live in the Bronx now. And um, I'm the only one in my household with red hair. Nice. Is so where did you we're on from the, the hair the topic, topic <laughs> I don't know. Alrighty, everyone. That's must have to do a That's good. Is it, it's too hot. You want to No, yeah, it's good. It's good. we we'll cool. just take one sip and then we're good to go. Okay. Alrighty. So, tonight's class, part one of two is Investing in the Invisible. See, both classes are two different perspectives on freedom. Tonight's class is going to be about freedom from, from barriers that hold us back, that we might think hold us back, I'll say it that way. And next class will be freedom to. So now we're speaking about freedom from. One of the paradigms, within which we see the world the lenses through which we see the world is that when things are forbidden to us and we're not allowed to do them so that limits us we are bound by our intuitive kind of reaction to that which is we, we are told is off bounds from us we are not allowed to we it is in Hebrew asur it is forbidden. It is wrong. It is bad. It's not allowed for us. Other people can, but I'm not allowed to eat that food. I am not allowed to say those words. I am not allowed to be in that kind of a place. I'm not allowed to wear that, and I am not allowed to um, take, you know, in, invest in that, invest in that uh, some that business venture. I can't. I'm with. I'm limited. So I feel like I'm not as free as everybody else. I can't wear what I want and eat what I want and say what I want and go where I want and do things when I want to. I'm limited. So what we're going to do today is we're going to take a second look at what we call prohibition, limitation, those words you're not allowed to. It's forbidden. Okay? They make us feel resentful. And we're going to take a second look at that experience, how that works and what that's really all about. Because, it won't be a surprise to you, that in Judaism, there's 365 rules about what you're not allowed to do. And only 248 rules about what you should do. So there's more prohibitions than there are obligations. And people look at us and say, oh, there's so you're not allowed to do this, and you're not allowed to do that, and how could you live like that? So, in the English language, by the way, there are words that make us feel good and fuzzy, such as apple pie and harmony. And you can tell me some words that make you feel good. You just like hearing them. (laughs) Rugula. Charisma. Charisma is a good word. Makes, right? Enlightened. Enlightened. Tell me some bad words. Tell me words that you immediately get a negative uncomfortable feeling about? Tense. (laughs) That describes it. Right? Tweak. Disease. Exams. Right? Terror. Crash. And what about the word no? No for you. You can't. You're forbidden. You're not allowed to. We just have an internal mechanism that makes us say, really? Oh, if you tell me not to, then what do I want to do? Then I really want to try it. Okay, so let's start with evaluating the whole concept of that which is not allowed, that which is prohibited, forbidden. But we're not going to speak about it in the way you expect to. We're going to go way off into a totally different type of um, perspective on it. I'm going to ask you this. We're going to do a little thought experiment. I say to you, I'm so thirsty, could you please bring me water and a glass? So a good helpful soul comes running over with a bucket of water and a block of glass. (laughs) So what's the problem? You can't do anything with it. Correct. Why? It's not something that... It's obvious. like you can't hold the glass to have the water in there. Why? There's no hold. Okay, good. There's no... Opening. Opening. There's no hole. What is a hole made out of? Air. Nothing, right? Air fills it. But a hole is where there is no glass, correct? A hole is where there is no glass. So actually, what do you need? Water and a hole that is surrounded by glass, correct? Now, most of us are find that the whole part of the glass is invisible. We don't process it. She's very good. She picked up on it. But I got to tell you, I'm impressed, because 99% of the time when I ask that question, it takes many, like, attempts to get to the point where people say there's no emptiness, there's no hole, there's no place where there's nothing. So that was very good. And you just shortened the class by two minutes. (laughs) But um, the idea here is, as you can all see, we want an empty hole surrounded by glass. So now, if you were the glass manufacturer, okay, would you feel frustrated and limited because you have all this glass to work with and to shape and you're not allowed to let any of it into that hole? That hole has to just be empty. And you have to hold the glass back and keep that hole clean and neat. And if even a tiny little jagged end of glass is sticking into that hole, it's no good. You can't have anything, not a drop. Would you feel like you're limited and you're frustrated? Of course not, because you know that producing a glass, which is a very functional, useful, necessary utensil, requires what? Glass and nothing in proper arrangement with each other, correct? So that's how we're going to understand prohibitions. That's what they are. They're the combination of what we add to the situation and what we hold back. And do not let be included in the situation, or whatever we're involved in. So let's give another example. Music. Anybody musical here? So let's say you were looking at a sheet of music, and you saw one note that just continued for the entire page. Would that be considered music? If an instrument started playing a tone, and it just played one unbroken tone with no highs or lows, no variation. Nothing. Would that be called music? Yeah. Maybe. Okay, let's say not music. Would it be called rhythm, melody? No. Okay, good. That's a better word. <laughs> Why not? Because when we talk about a rhythm or a melody or any type of combination of sounds, which is pleasing or perhaps even unpleasing to the ear, what we're looking at is many notes... And each note is separated from the next note by a tiny Tiny. little space or pause or silence, right? Many notes separated by tiny little micro pauses. And when you play a piano, let's say, there is a distinct separation between the notes. And the way somebody plays that, the silences and the sounds is often what contributes to their greatness, to their sensitivity, to the depth and the passion in the piece. So, would you say that the composer is frustrated, prohibited, limited, because he cannot put one note running through the entire page. He's got to have places where there's no you know, notes, no sound, like empty spaces, pauses, silences. And it's annoying, and it holds him back, or her. Would we say that? Of course not, because we understand that the melody or the rhythm is a function of what you hear, and those tiny little pauses in between what you hear that define them. So sometimes you hear a piece of music, and suddenly the, ento- the whole piece, the, the, all the music, an orchestra's playing, all the music stops for a second or two seconds, and then starts again. What's the point? What's the purpose of that pause? For an expressive meaning? What, what happens to the music after the pause? Because of the pause, you have more drama. drama, exactly. It adds drama to the music that follows. So the silences are crucial. They're as necessary as the notes themselves. Okay, let's do it in art. Who draws or who paints here? So tell me how this idea applies to painting when you're trying to create an image on a canvas. Okay, (laughs) yes, but do you fill your entire canvas with equally intense, let's say, color, if you're trying to get a focal point, you're trying to get an eye to a focal point, you need to ensure that you have what is called negative space. Negative space allows for the center, it might not be the center, but the focal point to come into view. This idea applies in every single area in life. There is no area that you will encounter in all of existence, in li- living, our existence, that does not require a combination of what we add and what we hold back. And together they create the full, total whole, the power, the, import- the functionality, the completion, or completeness of it. Let's do it. Let's take this into relationships. Okay. So you say to someone, I have something very disturbing I need to confide in, in someone. Who do you suggest I confide in? Um, and they say to you, you know what, your good friend so-and-so, they are wonderful. You should speak to them. First of all, they will listen to every word you say. They will take, you know, take it into consideration, really think about it. They'll be very deliberate about how they you know, uh, um, evaluate the situation They'll do the research to figure out what would be best for you. They will give you all the time you want to explain it to you. They'll guide you through the process that you need to go through. This, they have you know, super good judgment, excellent judgment, so you can trust how they see things. I think you should talk to this person. So you go ahead and you do that. And they're all of those things. They are as wonderful as they've been described. And you say, this is a good friend, a smart person, a caring person helpful person, what more could you want? There's only one problem. You go home and on their Facebook page or whatever, they broadcast to the whole world, oh my goodness, do you know what so-and-so just told me? The whole thing, straight up for uh, uh, 10,000 friends to see. What just happens? A person is not just the, the totality of what they do, what they say. It's, they're very much Measured by what they don't say, what they will not reveal when they don't talk and don't oh, don't ex- you know reveal what's inside themselves when they don't share. It's not just about how much you share; it's how much you don't share, right? Everyone could see that a friendship is very much uh, based on both values. One alone is unstable, and in fact, it could be terrible. you know, it could be destructive in extreme okay let's take another example Alrighty, marriage so what's wrong with this what went wrong here so the guy or it says we're women will make the guy the bad one um, the guy says i don't know why my wife is so angry at me why she wants to divorce me i give her all the time in the world if you figure out the end what i'm about to say is tell me i give her all the time in the world i should give her all the money in the world we share that we love sharing the same types of, you know, you know, entertainment. We love spending time together, discussing all kinds of things. I'm there for her whenever she needs me. I'm compassionate. I care about her. I'm very affectionate to her. Show her all the love I could possibly show. I don't know why she hates me so much. Are you hinting at Nita? No, no, no. I'm asking. <laughs> no, why does I my don't. wife hate me so much? Because everything he's supposed to be doing, he's doing. So what's happening? He doesn't give her space. He doesn't mention that he also Must treats another woman the same way. Okay? Now, what does that mean? It's not about who you're married to that makes a good marriage. It's by knowing who you're not married to. Okay? <laughs> Being very conscious about the people you are not married to. And therefore, cannot be spoken to a certain way. cannot be treated a certain way and cannot be interacted with in a certain way because you're not married to them. There's a red line. Marriage, the trust built into a marriage is where each partner feels secure that they know they're married to me and they know they are not married to anyone else and what that means. Now, under the chuppah, we actually sanctify the marriage by making a bracha, specifically stating this. The bracha says, we recognize, you know, that this it is it's a mitzvah, right? In this marriage, to exclusively be permitted to this one and to be prohibited, forbidden from all others. We state that that's the that is the context of the marriage. Who I am married to and who I am not married to. And I just want to mention, and I'm taking the question one second, yeah. that that process of standing under chuppah and making that bracha and a couple other brachas with it is called, anyone know in Hebrew what that's called? Kedushin. And the word kadosh, in Hebrew, in English, we call it holy, but that's like, what does holy mean? So in, in our language, kadosh, or you want to say holy, means mufrash, separated away from, what I don't do or say or think or get involved in, the part of me that is held back and separated. That's the kadosh. So in marriage, which is called Kidushin, I am separating myself from all others and permitting myself exclusively to this one. Okay. So was this bracha inst- instituted after men were no longer allowed to marry multiple women? Also, we'll talk about multiple women later, okay? Because I don't okay. want to digress. <laughs> okay. Um, now, these are ancient brachas, but we'll bring that up afterwards. Now, um, next. So you see that you see this. Uh, this pattern of what you what you're consciously, what your the paradigm you're functioning within, okay, it is a paradigm that takes into account what we you might want to call it positive and negative, the active and the restraint. But in every area in life, it's a combination of both. That makes whatever relationship, whatever enterprise or endeavor that you're busy with succeed. There is no way to only be a person that is doing and adding and contributing without any sense of where I hold back. Let's give another example in relationships. Okay? Two more we'll do. And then we'll move on to something between, something more spiritual, something between us and God. So in relationships, we um, have a problem. Everybody pretty much has a sense or knows more clearly that human beings are individual. And we're different inside as we are different on the outside. And we think different, and we feel different, and we aspire to different things. And we have different souls. We have a different life force. We call that an ashamma. And we also have different bodies. Now, if you had to try to figure out what, which one makes me unique more, you say, well, our bodies certainly distinguish us. And there is no question that the physicality of a person does add something to their individuality. So, for example, if a person was very tall and very magnificent and very graceful and all of that, of course that would affect their personality, and vice versa. If somebody was, unfortunately, born disabled or crippled, or so, of course that affects their personality. However, however, in terms of physicality, we have a range of similarities and dissimilarities. And let's just take for example, people. Your average person, not someone who's particularly unique in the way they're, God forbid, formed. But let's say your average person. You take thousand women, undressed, took a picture of them, okay, naked, cut off all the heads. You would have a hard time finding yourself because we have about a 10 inch difference range this way, and like maybe I don't know, 10-12 inch range this way. There's not that much variety. And uh, we're basically similar physically, essentially. We have, and in addition to that, our physicality is not in our control. So, for example, let's try this experiment right now. Body, do not metabolize the bag of potato chips that I just ate. It doesn't listen. Grow me blonde hair. Okay, grow, make me three, it doesn't listen to us. It does not listen to us. It's not in our control. It's not us. And another factor about the body is that it gets, trust me on this one, worse with age. Okay, <laughs> It gets worse. It doesn't get better. So we have something that is not in our control, that degenerates, and that is pretty similar than everybody else, and yet it's somewhat, we sometimes think it's us. But at the same time, we also have a soul. And the soul is unique. First of all, it gets better with age because we can improve it. And it's completely un- under our control. And we, and we increase its strength, and we, we add to it dimensions and facets that can make it more and more beautiful. And it is entirely unique. And it's what makes me me now. I know, God forbid, I was in a terrible accident. My whole physicality was like, you know, really... Uh, really damaged. I would still want people to love me for who I am, and even take it further. Can you imagine being who you are? And God forbid, I don't want to say anyone, you, but a person had their both arms amputated. Would they still be who they are? What if they had both arms and both legs amputated? Would they still feel like this is who I am? No, they would say uh, there's an I. I don't have a person doesn't have arms and no legs, but I'm not I have my thoughts, I have my feelings, it's just I'm So we really want people to know us and to love us and to cherish us and to value us for who we are, our neshama, and not our body. The problem is that our soul, our neshama, is invisible. So what are we supposed to do about that? How do you get somebody to appreciate you and relate to you and cherish you and commit to you for your neshama, for who you are inside? So we have a mechanism. We call it modesty. Some people think it's a whole host of annoying limitations. You can't show this, and you can't show that, and you can't show this. That's not what it is at all. The objective of modesty is to reveal the soul. If there's any point in the body, any part in the body, where a glimmer of the neshama could shine through, where would that be? It wouldn't be the elbow or the back of the knee. Where would the neshama shine through, obviously? Our face the eyes of the mirror to the soul, the expressions on a person's face, even what they speak about, the softness on a person's face. In fact, the word panim in Hebrew is the same as the word pnim, which means internal. So what we're trying to do is distract attention from all other distracting parts so that the attention, by not being distracted, is drawn to the essential part, the divine part, the where the soul can be glimpsed, and that's the face of a person, and so covering is not a value in and of itself, it's a mechanism, we hold back, we don't show, we, 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 we diminish the distraction by covering in order to reveal, so it's not so much about you're not allowed to show, it's you must reveal your, your divine essence, your spirituality who you really are. That's our obligation. That's what makes us human in God's form. And so here again, it's what we, what we reveal and what we don't reveal that work together to bring out this um, essential message for humanity that a person is not their body. That's our job. Men have to do it too, but it definitely falls upon women to make sure humanity learns that lesson now, let's talk about one more example, and then we're going to take your, some of your questions and your, 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 your own um, observations about this Shabbos. You're about to have Shabbos in our neighborhood. It's a great place to have Shabbos. It's a beautiful neighborhood. If you come again after this week, you'll see we live near the ocean. It's, it's uh, on a beautiful day. You can walk to the beach. It's, it's very nice, and it's a nice neighborhood in terms of the community. Yeah, but Everybody knows that on Shabbos... Okay, what we don't do, okay, what we don't do is all those things that we normally do do during the week, right? Shabbos is built off essentially all the things we are not doing. It's now. I know you dress nice and you have a good meal, but that's not essentially Shabbos because if you were stuck in a desert island and you didn't have a good meal and you didn't have Shabbos clothes, you would not be violating Shabbos. So here's how it works. We are taught that there are 39 types of work or types of activities we do not engage in on Shabbos. And anybody who learns a little bit more realizes that it's really not 39. It's like 39 billion different things. <laughs> but they all fall under basic categories, little details. But you get used to them. So here's how it works. They break up into three categories. About, uh, pretty much about uh, equally, the categories are. They are the, all the things you need to do to pursue and acquire for yourself food, clothing, and shelter. In other words, the basic human needs that we are busy with all week, driving after, pursuing, acquiring, and organizing for ourselves, are finished, done, prepared before Shabbos ever starts. We don't get involved with them, So we are not busy with all the things that we need to keep our physical life going, our life in this world. By not being busy with these things, guess what happens? What begins to emerge? What part of ourselves can we finally focus on? Because things quiet down. Because our food is prepared, our clothing is prepared, our our shelter is prepared, we're not pursuing it, we're not working with it, it's done. There's nothing to to work, there's nothing to be busy with. So what happens when we have quiet time? Suddenly the spiritual part of ourselves, the neshama starts to be able to be heard. And we, we tune in to our spiritual side and we say, what are we living for and what are we driving for? And what are we putting all our efforts in for anyway? What we, what's it all, what's it, where's it all going? In which direction? What's it building? Who's it serving, right? What's its goal? So we start hearing our neshama. That's because everything else quiets down. So Shabbos, which is also called Kodesh, again, pulling back, And the only mitzvah in the whole Torah that tells you what you should actually do on Shabbos is only one mitzvah. Everything else is what you shouldn't do. The mitzvah is to make kiddush, same word. To initiate Shabbos by sanctifying it. That means by making it separate from all other days by what we're no longer busy with. And by quieting down that part, the spiritual part just naturally emerges. And it's there, and it can be listened to and related to, and and it could be taken into consideration. And it could could rejuvenate us, re-inspire us, redirect us. So there is nothing in Judaism that is designed to hold a person back. It's not possible that God wants to hold us back because he created us in his image, and he's limitless, and nobody holds God back. God is not controlled by some greater force that says, you can't do this. Everything that the Torah guides us towards with what we, telling us how to act and how to, how to pull back, in other words, what to think and what we don't think. Even, for example, let's talk about thinking for one second. Somebody hurts you. You can think whatever you want. But we're taught not to think the most negative thoughts, being... Not to think thoughts of revenge, to plan revenge, not to judge that person in the most unfavorable way. Don't think toxic thoughts, because in the end, what will they do to us? Destroy our They. What happens to a person who gets consumed with anger, frustration, thoughts of revenge, plans for revenge, feeling taken advantage of, feeling... What happens to the person who allows themselves to think all those things? They're, wasting their time. they're eating themselves up. They're wasting their time, probably waste a lot of money too. The Torah tells us, judge the whole person favorably. You know what that means? Let's say the person offended us really bad. And let's say they actually did something that was, was damaging to us. It doesn't mean we can't go to court and get back what they owe us or whatever. It doesn't mean that. It means when you start thinking about the whole incident, you can say to yourself this. You can say, I'll never forgive them all. Take revenge on them all. You know, destroy your life in the process. Eat yourself up become a bitter, miserable person that nobody wants to be around. (laughs) Or you can say, you know what? This person really, really goofed. Bad. And I wouldn't do it. But, you know what? They have a whole life ahead of them. This doesn't mean that as a human being they're entirely unsalvageable forever. People get smarter. People get, you know, people, you know, reevaluate things. People fix themselves. People do... And, you know, do uh, improve themselves. That happens all the time. People pull themselves up from, you know, pretty bad places. So, you know what, let it be. I wish them luck. You know, let them go on their way. What would I want somebody to think about me if I made a terrible, terrible mistake? I'd want them to say about me, you know what, let them be. Give them time. They're not unsalvageable. They're a good person. You know, they could be a good person, too. So, you know, I'm just moving on. That's what we'd want. So we do the same for the other person. So we don't think negative thoughts. So the Torah tells us what you think and what you don't think make you who you are. What you say and what you don't say. Slander, lies, things that torture, words that you know, are designed to really abuse verbally and you know, emotionally another person. Um, 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 flattery, all kinds of stuff. What we say and what we don't say is, makes up the composite of who we are, what we, how we act and how we don't act, the red lines we don't cross. They all, Everything comes together to make us a whole person, a fully developed person, a person that's aware that I'm a creator, but part of creating is restraint. Part of creating is restraint. Because if I threw everything I had, imagine if a parent... Never held back and let their child emerge on their own. Let their child make their own decisions and their own mistakes and learn from it. What if a parent just overwhelms the child with constant, you know, you know, interference? What would happen? Part of bringing, you know, helping something else find its fullness, the emerge into its what it could be fully, is also holding back ourselves and relationships. That comes in too. You know, letting people figure it out on their own. And I want to end with this. This um, there's so much to say on this, but we'll end with this visual. Well, the two types of artists: the painter and the sculptor. The painter creates the the painting, and it could be magnificent. It could even look like it's almost three dimensional. How do they do that? One brushstroke, a second brushstroke, a hundred, a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand. By the composite, by adding more and more and more and more to the canvas, eventually something magnificent emerges. But how does a sculptor work? They take a block of marble, let's say, and then what? Chip away. Remove, 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 remove. What isn't there? What isn't there? What doesn't belong? What cannot remain? What's not allowed to be part of the whole final product? And what happens? A three-dimensional image emerges from what's removed we are we are creatures we are we, we we fashion ourselves into more and more worthy divine-like creatures by not only all the things we choose to do and say and think but very much by all the things that we choose to not say not do and not think okay does this make sense (laughs) freedom from feeling oppressed by guidelines that actually help us, free us they are not holding us back they are freeing us to be more, to create more to be more worthy to be greater to be wiser do you want to deal with your question? yeah (laughs) Something that bothers me. So. Okay. So it, it comes up, you know, so we, we could, it not really, does not really have much into that talk, but it's an interesting topic, multiple wives. <laughs> so let's just be clear about this. Um, technically, it there, there was a time when men were permitted to marry more than one wife. Yeah. Be very careful about this, because people will, who don't have enough information, will argue... A, a totally mistaken argument and we have to know what the facts are. There is absolutely no example in our Torah of any man who willingly took a second wife. There are only two examples in the beginning of Genesis and who would they be? Adam and Eve. No, he never Abraham took a second oh, wife. Yeah. Yeah. Abraham, and Abraham took a second wife. How did that happen? She was barren, and who thought of it? Who suggested it, and who forced it? Sorry. The wife said, "You have to take my maidservant. I'm going to free her, make her a full wife, and just I want you to have children. You know, you're um, you're 99. It's like time. It's time to try <laughs> again, right? Sarah did it. Avram never wanted it, never asked for it, and didn't even and resisted it. And she said, "I insist." What? Who was the other one? Yeah. Yeah. Yaakov, and how did that happen? Did he ask for it? Rachel, his. Father and his,
1: uh, his uh, <laughs> promised
0: wife, she concocted this idea and she said to Leah, you marry my husband first and I'll marry him second. She did it. There is no case of a Jewish man in Torah that willingly chose a second wife. There is only one case in Navi, much, 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 much later, of a man who had two wives and the Navi specifically states that it was a very suboptimal situation And that is the if you want to know the one, his name was, his name was Elkanah. He had two wives, Hannah and Penina. Penina had many children. Hannah had none. And Hannah prayed and finally gave birth to a child named Samuel, Shmuel. But that was the only case in the entire Tanakh. And now the story is that why is it permitted? Because in the olden days and unfortunately you might argue it's could be a similar situation brewing today unfortunately but in the olden days women were did not you know did not were not um, able to, the society was not set up for women to be independent women were in t- very dependent on their fathers or their husbands for food for protection for sustenance for existence why was that because back in the day women menstruated when they were 12 or 13 so they could be pregnant, which means they would always be in a state of being weakened by menstruation, by by pregnancy, by childbirth, by nursing, babies. Women were vulnerable before birth control, any sophisticated birth control. Women were physically weaker. And if a woman was was taken by a man and was pregnant with a baby. How was she supposed to go to the field and chop down trees and get firewood and hunt animals? And I mean, one person couldn't do it all. There was a real division of labor, and women were weak, physically weak, and life back then was about strength and weakness. That's how you survive. It wasn't the technology age. So a woman had to be either under the protection of their father or their husband. A free woman did not make it. So if a woman was not married to a man, Okay, and she was single, let's say she was still with her father, and her father was old, or her father was very poor and couldn't support her. He needed to find a safe place for his daughter, and that would only be in the household of a husband. And so there were husbands who took second wives. Now, if you know the laws of what, it, what a husband commits to when they take a second wife, you either had to be very wealthy to have more than one wife, or very, very to take in someone else and if you were wealthy and very brutal and you decided like remember the good earth have one for children and one for beauty well we have a story of that right before the Mabo. remember the deluge the great flood the story right before it is a man that took two wives one for beauty and one for children and we are told that was the last straw and that's why God ended up destroying the world because that's unacceptable and that's what society was doing it was the last story, his name was Lemech, and he had two wives, one for beauty and one for children. And if you look in the commentary, it said that was the final, you know, um, uh, what's the word, um, the final degree of guilt on mankind. So there were cases where people took two wives. When the Jews moved to Arab lands, it became a little more common because that's the influence of the Arabs. It is not essentially Jewish, okay? And if you did take a second wife, the law is explicit. Each wife gets equal treatment, which means you may not. You sign on the ksuva, on that dotted line by two witnesses, that you will provide for all food, clothing, shelter, and all sexual requirements, which means you cannot withhold anything and more one less the other. Forbidden by halacha, signed in front of witnesses. So this was a protection for women. If they needed that situation, it was never optimal. No one would ever opt for such a thing, obviously. Back in the primordial ideal state of existence, which is referred to as the Garden of Eden, there was one man and one woman. That's the model. A union of male and female, two souls. It's never a model to have three. It's never good. In fact, in Hebrew, the word, the name for the second wife, her name is Hatzara, Tsara. Do you know what Tsara means? Saras. That's, that's what she was called. Sarah, Each one was actually called Sarah. vis-à-vis the other. So, if a man took a second wife, he still made that bracha. That you permitted me this one, and you permitted me everyone else. Because when a man married a woman with chuppah, and the obligations of the k'suva, so she was also exclusively hers, uh, his, but you could not, that means that you could not go to any woman and have any type of relationship with her other than through the mechanism of agreeing with witnesses in a ceremony to providing forever food, clothing, shelter, and sexual rights. You had to sign on the line, otherwise, the person was forbidden. So that there was no such thing as random, you know, meant to be to eliminate random, you know, hookups, so to speak. Um, and it did a good job. It did a good job. The Jews became basically a very, very moral monogamous religion. Wow. That was the best answer I've ever heard to that question. <laughs> I ask that question a lot. It's really simple facts. I don't know what anyone else would say other than that, honestly. It's like You'd be basic. <laughs> Any other questions on what we spoke about? I really appreciate your take on SNEAS. I've never heard of it like that. But it rings true, right? Yeah. Okay. That's why, for example, I want this is very important too, people will have misinformation. It says in one of the early parashas of the Torah that when our forefather Yitzhak, Isaac, uh, first met his wife, Rivka, she came on a camel with, uh, from another land with Isaac's servants who went to fetch her. So it says that when she saw Yitzhak, she covered her face with a veil. So people reading simply say, you see, women, Jewish women are meant to cover their faces with veils. So first of all, covering one's face with a veil is a violation of the very notion of the divine essence, the soul of a human being, because that's the part that's divine, that is never covered. So when she covered it, Rashi, the commentary, specifically says, because he was so holy, she saw an aura of such divine holiness about him, she couldn't look at him. Like, when you look at the sun and it's too bright, you feel your eyes are going to burn? She protected herself. That's what Rashi says. It has nothing to do with that Jewish women cover their eyes, in fact, cover their faces. In fact, the Arab style of a woman covering her whole body, including her whole face with maybe just the eyes or, or whatever, is the ultimate statement of the denigration and the lack of divinity and soul in a human being, in a woman. Because what it's saying is, females are bad, because they're they're temptation, right? You are a female, you are bad, goodbye. In other words, there is no acknowledgement that within the female is a soul, and that soul is the essence of the person, and it should become more dominant than the body. And that's why Jewish normal Jewish men, and normal men in general, can speak to a woman, look at her face, and if they're dressed modestly, have a normal relationship and a normal conversation because the focus is on the right thing, and there's no distraction. And it happens all the time. Everybody interacts with each other health in a healthy way. I mean, not everybody, but it's men, and plenty of people are able to do this. We don't have to just like shut the curtain on them and go, you know, female, goodbye. That's like the worst. It's not modesty at all. It's the ultimate degradation saying you are an, a female piece of meat, a female animal and that's all you are. There's nothing divine or modest about it. Yeah. Uh, so, my question is twofold, but it has to do with the halachas that were instituted in order to uh, keep you. Um, so the first one to your point of you know, focusing on someone's shamaq not physicality, so why not create a halacha saying that you can't even have style, because that's also, that, that might also be we distracting. Are, the Torah doesn't do that, it doesn't micromanage your life in that way, it just tells you, you understand, you know what, there's a famous Supreme Court judge, Justice, he was like, it was a whole pornography case, and they asked him, please define pornography, he goes, look, I, not, I can't exactly define it, but I know when I see it, okay, same thing with modesty, Alright, the, the halacha is very basic. Look, your upper body needs a cut-off point. Like, where do you cut it off? So, in, there were two options, shoulder or elbow. These are like clear demarcations of the upper body. So, it's cut off by the, shoulder, by the elbow, so the whole trunk is included. Bottom part of your body, here, cut-off point. Done, there's nothing else. What about um, tightness? Okay, that's your own sensitivity. Obviously, if somebody's walking around, looking like a prostitute, Okay? But their skirt goes to their knee, and their shirt goes here. That's not modest. The whole point of modesty is that I'm trying to bring attention to the most respect-worthy, divine, sublime, elevated part of myself, which is, in a sense, not just my face, but it's, my, it's what I say. It's what I, how I look. It's what I, what, I, what I choose to focus on in my life. So that's all, and every, you know, it's like, you got to use your common sense. Right, so, so related to that, though, is the prohibition on wearing pants, and I understand... Why no, that's a totally separate prohibition. Right, so... That has to do with men and women. Right. Men not wearing women's clothes, and women not wearing men's clothes, so that there shouldn't be, a, basically... Mix so many, you know, mixing of the genders. In other words, you can't be a transvestite, you cannot wear, you can't walk around in women's clothes, a woman can't walk around in men's clothes, can't be a cross dresser. So, what that leads to is that things that make a woman look like a man are forbidden and vice versa. However, if you want to say that there are pants that are designed entirely for women and they're not man like at all, you have another issue. And the other issue is modesty, which means you cannot show, you know, the shape of your leg, the shape of your body. So, let's say you get around both. Very baggy, female, okay, not man-style at all. You don't, you don't want to put a zipper here. You're pretty okay with it, actually. But it's not the protocol in the religious communities, I'll be honest with you, but would anyone be able to say it's not modest? Probably not. My question was going to say, like, what's wrong with wearing skinny jeans and wearing, like, a shirt that... Or, like a Nothing. Right. That covers nothing. Everything. There's nothing wrong with wearing skinny jeans and a tunic down to here. Right. But I'm telling you that in the if you want to... You know, there's a certain... Um, developed cultural kind of like uh, protocol in the religious community, and they dress a certain way. However, those are a little bit more open-minded, and, you know, there's more room than one if style of just dressing. Said something, I didn't understand. <laughs> Sorry. That's <laughs> the it, second share it happened to. There is more room than, there's not just one way of dressing. In the Sephardim, for example, the Sephardim, they wear pants and long tunics that's how they dress, you know, and, they, and the tunics go down, like, like the Indians, actually, to their knees, and it's totally modest. But in the typical New York religious community, there's a certain style that's, you know, that's adopted. But, you know, you can't do a silly, you know, you have to know what, you have to be, if we need, it would be good if the religious community was a little bit more open to different variations on, on, uh, on the theme. I once heard a rabbi saying that um, women can't even wear leggings under their skirts because they're considered pants. Okay, so you need not to listen to anyone who says leggings (laughs) being (laughs) pants. (laughs) Or and I was just like, okay, don't go there. There's okay, it's very simple. Elbows, knees, (laughs) not too tight. Goodbye. Okay, that's it. Oh, and Colin, enough here. That's it. That's it. It's not very complicated. Modesty for men too. Yeah. I've never heard. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so, they technically, you know, don't have to cover, you know, um, their elbows or their knees, but uh, you know, in the religious world, they all do. They well, No one's walking around in shorts. And you know, even the more religious you get, they 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 dress more modestly. They're more conscious of it. Is it forbidden to walk around in shorts? Absolutely not. Absolutely not, you know, but a religious person will be very sensitive, like a woman, to the same factors and try not to present themselves as some type of eye candy. I don't know. Same thing. But the laws, yes, they don't have the as-specific, like, you know, the, the elbow and the knee are not earmarked. But the, the spirit of the law is very much the same. My husband, for example, he's a lawyer. Not even he, because he's religious and because he's a lawyer, he's... He doesn't really walk around in shorts except in very, you know, for hiking somewhere in the mountains. Like in town, he just doesn't. He feels like, you know, it's, he, you know, it's just part of uh, his sense of self. Um, by the way, when my husband began, he's an attorney, and when he uh, took his uh, new job in KPMG, this huge accounting firm that has like 150,000 accounts all over the world, there was an orientation. And he was astonished. So for the women, you want to hear what the guidelines were? No cleavage. No bare legs. No short skirts above a certain, like two, three inches. They're very, because very simply, they want their work, their their staff to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. That's it. It's not an advertising agency. It's not Hollywood. They want their staff to be taken very seriously, respected. Yeah, I, I remember when I was in seminary um, there. Um, one of the rabbis said if you want the secretary job a law firm actually has it if you want the secretary job this is how you're allowed to dress if you want the lawyer job this is how you need to dress right that's right dignity what is, there's more to a person well that's a, that you all know it was not something I was teaching you obviously but um, what we were discussing is in terms of freedom let's just tie it back to freedom freedom is sometimes the freedom to know when Restraint builds us, and not be afraid of restraint, and not feel like just because we're being taught what the proper guidelines are for restraint, then immediately we should resist them. There's wisdom coming at us from thousands of years, from very great people, and uh, and when we hear the, you know, the, the we hear what the Torah wants from us, and some of it involves what we don't say or do, or etc. We realize. Wait, wait, wait! If we put this together, this builds us. This is helping us maximize, fully, kind of, you know, fully develop ourselves and fully emerge into all we can be. righty, we good? Thank you. Thank you. So I hope to see you all. Thank you. I hope to see you all in Chavez.